But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanuel to the corner gate. Indeed, the scripture teaches profoundly and plainly that the Lord says, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. He who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. Our Father, we thank you for this unconditional promise that you made that a day will come as this prophet speaks the time of Jacob's trouble when the nation of Israel will be brought to their knees when they will confess that Yeshua is Lord thank you that when you make a promise that's unconditional in nature that you keep it that you cannot lie that you will be faithful to yourself that as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are in the sky above, that you will keep your promise to Israel, that you will not forsake her. Father, we live in a day when this promise has been ignored. And even among some of your people, I believe in ignorance, are poking their finger in your eye. For you said that Israel is the apple of your eye. And that you who began the coming of the Messiah through this nation will complete it for his second coming. I'm grateful, as you told us, to pray for all in authority over us that our president has done what is right, that he has indeed sent ships and troops to send a message, and we pray that it would be more than show, but if need be, that he would put teeth to those promises he has made. We think of Richard Nixon an outright pagan whom you used to defend the nation of Israel in a war some 50 years ago. We know they cannot be wiped off the planet, and you promised that once you would regather them, they would never leave again. But we know you have a means in which to accomplish that, and so we intercede for our own president that you would give him wisdom to do what is right. We pray for our troops, should they be called in harm's way, especially those in this fighting force of Marines, that you would watch over them and keep them safe. Now we come and we lay our hearts before you, our Father, and we recognize that your word is truth. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. You commanded us to hunger for it like a newborn baby thirsts for milk. And so help us to gird up our minds for action, to pay close attention, protect our minds from wandering. Help us to hear what you have to say on this Lord's day, and please help me to say it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the prophet Malachi chapter 2. If you're new, just find the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1, and you'll turn back a page and you'll be in Malachi chapter 2. Now, many are joining us for the first time, and we've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this great prophet. He's classified as one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. The terms minor prophets and major prophets, of course, are a simple way to categorize some of the Old Testament prophetic books. The minor prophets are described as minor because of the length of their material. They're shorter than the major prophets who are longer. And they're also called minor prophets because their message is very narrowly focused for the most part. Whereas with the major prophets, they speak to a broader application and context with even global implications. But understand when we speak of the major prophets, the 12 and the minor prophets, we're not saying that one group are more inspired than the other. They're all equally inspired by God. And certainly when you read the prophet Malachi, his message is not minor. Indeed, it is mighty. Now let me review for a moment. Many are here listening for the first time. But again, I want you to have a handle on the book by the time we're finished that you can think your way all the way through these four short little chapters. We saw in the opening message that the word Malachi, Malachi in Hebrew literally means my messenger. And indeed, he is God's messenger at this second great exodus, the first out of Egypt, the second out of Babylon. And of course, um, when you read any Old Testament prophet, you want to ask at what time in Israel's history is he writing? The reason the Old Testament for many of us, apart from maybe Psalms and Proverbs, is the clean section of our Bible is because we can't put it together historically. And so we have those prophets who ministered before the exile, and they're called pre-exilic prophets. We have those prophets who ministered during the exile. There's just two, Daniel and Ezekiel, they're called exilic prophets. And then there are those prophets who ministered after the exile, there's just three. There is Zechariah the prophet, there is Malachi, and there is Haggai. Now, if you remember, the book of Ezra deals with the rebuilding of the temple. The people started out, but they were quickly discouraged by the pagans around them. And of course, you needed to be able to worship with a sense of security. So God raises up a layman. His name is Nehemiah. He's not a prophet, but he's used mightily of the Lord to build the walls around the city. And he, with Ezra, lead in a revival of sorts. A time came, sadly, though, when the folks had become complacent. And so God raises up Malachi. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, they're involved in the rebuilding and the revival of the people. You have Haggai in that they started the temple, but the people became, again, discouraged. And he said, look, you're living in beautiful homes, and the house of the Lord is not complete. Put your money where your mouth is, and he calls the people to obedience. The temple is up, the walls are around, but the people's hearts had grown cold. The revival in Nehemiah and Ezra's day had dwindled. So Malachi calls the people back to obedience, and he deals with a number of issues. These people are suffering from spiritual nearsightedness. All they can see is the problems around them and their circumstances, and those problems and circumstances are controlling their outlook and their behavior. Now, if you read the book, there are 23 questions in the book, but there are seven sets of questions that highlight six specific sins. 
And so we've been working our way through some of those sins. And the pattern is the same. You say this, but God says this. You say this, but God says this. Here's a chart to help you to see where we've been so far. The first issue, the people were doubting God's love in the opening paragraph. And that's the underlying theme of this whole prophetic work. Lord, you don't really love us. How have you loved us? And he reminded them, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And he goes back to Genesis 25, where there's a woman, Rebecca, who's pregnant with twins, and there's all this disturbance within. And God says, there's two nations in your womb. And I'm going to have one nation take superiority over the other because the one nation, the descendants of Jacob, are going to bring the Savior of the world. So they shouldn't have doubted God's love because God had loved them with an everlasting love. Then in chapter 1 and verse 6, we saw that they were despising God's name. And we discovered that there's more than one way to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Many times we think of just the name of the Lord as a curse word, and that certainly is wrong. But that's not the principal way in Scripture in which people use the name of the Lord, their God, in vain. They used it in vain in that they said this, we believe this about God, but we live this way. And so if you remember, they brought these sacrifices, sacrifices they wouldn't even give to their governor. And God says, you bring these scrawny lambs that are defective, and you're asking me to receive them from, my, from your hand? And so we saw they despised God's name. On the next box there, as you'll see, bring it up, they were debasing God's covenant. If you were here last time, we saw how God had made a covenant with Israel that it's through the people of Israel the Messiah will come. And what were they doing? Well, in their homes, which is the basic entity of the nation, because as the home goes, so goes the nation. And history has documented that when the home falls apart, it's a short throw before the nation collapses within. And some of the men were despising the wives of their youth. They were divorcing their wives. And God said, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. And they were debasing his covenant. Now we'll see this morning a fourth issue where they are debating God's justice. There's two more that we'll look at before we come to the fourth chapter. So with that context set, let's begin in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Follow along in your Bible. We're picking up precisely on the verse we left off last time. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the justice of God? Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me, and the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, you could render it. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, 
and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, it's important, again, as we read the passage, that you don't forget the setting and the situation in which Malachi preached. He is called to preach in a difficult time in Israel's history. The people are skeptical. They're indifferent. For half a century, they had been under Persian rule. They're oppressed by the Persians. Many are living in poverty. And their strong faith that they had shown in Nehemiah's day had given way to the kind of expression that Psalm 1 speaks of. They were sitting in the seat of scoffers. They were arguing with God about his love. They were arguing with God about his name. They were arguing with God about his covenant. And now, as we'll see this morning, they are arguing with God about his justice. And you will discover throughout the Bible, as in our text this morning, that sometimes the blessings of God are hindered in the life of a believer or in the life of a nation because of ingratitude and because of grumbling. There was a time when on any given Sunday, 80% of America was in some kind of house of worship. This morning, less than 20% will be in church somewhere. Why? Because we've become an ungrateful nation. And people are no longer giving God the worth that he is due. And so he preaches a difficult message. Indeed, it's not popular, but it is right. There's a note-taking outline that you can download if you're live streaming. It's in your bulletin, just three simple points that I want you to think about. The first begins with the charge by God, the charge by God. First comes the charge in verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, the Hebrew word wearied is yagad. It means literally to wear out. Not in a physical sense. God never physically gets weary. God himself doesn't have a physical body, except God the Son had one when he was here on earth, and now he is in his glorified body. But Isaiah can write, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. God never grows tired physically. He didn't rest on the seventh day because he was exhausted from the creation. But God can grow tired spiritually when we exhaust him by the way we treat him. So notice what he says. You have wearied the Lord. Notice it's all caps. One of the sacred names for God, the most sacred name for God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You've worn out the Lord with your words. Please understand, from God's point of view, words are not innocent. They're not neutral. They're important because they're a reflection of what's going on in a person's heart. Words are powerful, and these people were wearing, wearing the Lord out by their grumbling, by their complaining, by their criticisms. And it's not some simple, innocent act to murmur, to complain. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul highlights the truth of a nation that's sliding away from God as a nation that refuses to give praise or thanks, to acknowledge God as creator. That's where we are at today in America. And he also, in 1 Corinthians 10, for the church in Corinth, he highlights their murmuring and their grumbling. 
In fact, there are four sinful issues that he speaks against. Let me just refresh your memory in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 7. He, uh, first of all, accuses them of idolatry, and he says, do not be idolaters, as some of them. You're probably thinking, well, the Lord knows I'm not guilty of idolatry, and that, that's good. Then he says in verse 8 of that chapter, nor are we to commit sexual immorality as some of them that killed 23,000 in one day. You know, sometimes in Israel's history, you see God commit an act against his nation, his covenant people. This day he took out 23,000 to let you know how he feels about certain kinds of sin. God doesn't burn every sodomite city to the ground. He only had to do it once as an example, as Jude says, to let you know how he feels about sodomy. Hear about heterosexual immorality. You say, well, pastor, I would never, ever, ever want to commit adultery. Well, that's good. Then he mentions in verse 9, those who put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. You say, well, personally, Pastor, I would never want to put God to the test, never, except the way, the one way he tells me I can test him, which this prophet will highlight. But don't be so cocksure that you couldn't commit any of these sins that he's speaking of. That's why he will conclude this pericope by saying, let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. The instructions would be meaningless if the potential were not there. So he highlights now a fourth sin that all of us have been guilty of, and it's the sin of murmuring. It's the sin of grumbling. And we may not think it is a serious sin, but if you go back and read Numbers chapter 16, you discover that 14,700 people who are guilty of that sin died in one day. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There are some things that are very bothersome to God, and we may not have it at the top of our list, but God has it at the top of his list, and it's grumbling. And if we grumble as saved people, then we're throwing water on the fire of the Spirit, and some of us are not living a spirit-filled life and the impact that God wants us to have in our homes and in our places of work for the simple reason that we're complainers. And so some of these people in Malachi's day were selfish. They were discontent. And again, the scripture says these things happened as an example. The warning that Paul says, if it could happen to the nation of Israel, it can happen to any of us. But not only does he supply negative instruction about not grumbling and complaining, he also gives positive instruction. Most of you have memorized Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now remember when Paul writes Philippians, he's under house arrest, he's chained to a guard. It's why we refer to it as one of his prison epistles. And interestingly, when you read it, it doesn't seem like he's in prison seems like he's in a palace. But here was a man who had converted his chains. Here was a man who had, in the process, converted the whole, pra not the whole praetorium, but many in the praetorium guard because they would be chained to him for three and four hours at a time, and he had a captive audience. What did he talk to him about? The Lord Jesus. 
So he saw his negative circumstances as part of the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We tend not to rejoice. And remember, he doesn't say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. And that qualification is important. Because unless you see God, the living God, is providentially behind your circumstances, then we'll grumble. We'll complain. We won't rejoice in the Lord. Well, how on earth can God command someone to rejoice? Well, when you rejoice, you're putting your confidence in God. You believe in what's called providence. Sovereignty speaks largely of the acts of God across the universe, though not exclusively, whereas providence deals more with details in terms of the life of the believer. So much so that Jesus said a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from God's notice. Aren't you more important than birds? When you rejoice in the Lord, you're walking by faith and not by sight. You are obeying 1 Thessalonians 5.18, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all things, and you are exercising a belief that the promise of Romans 8.28, written to save people, to those who are the called, that he works all things together for our good. Now notice here in verse 17 of Malachi, the charge comes, you have wearied the Lord with your words. He's talking about a basic outlook that these people had. Again, they are struggling. They are under the boot of the Persians, and they're whining and complaining. And as we'll see in a moment, they accuse God of being unjust. Now, let me just say parenthetically, I have told you many times that psychology has walked in the front door of the evangelical church. Because we don't believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture, we've convinced ourselves that we need psychology to give us wisdom as to how to run our lives. And sadly, a number of preachers across the country will talk about the burdens and the struggles that you are in, and the only way for you to get free from them is to forgive God. God doesn't need any forgiveness. That's blasphemy to say that you need to forgive God. God is holy. He's never done anything wrong. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be honest with God. Just read the Psalms. They poured their heart out to the living Lord. But you are to do it in a way where you revere the Lord, that you recognize that He is God and He wants to hear hear about what you're going through. He cares about what you're going through. But his providence extends over the day-to-day events of what you're going through. Again, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Their words were cynical. They were skeptical. They come back into the land. God, we've rebuilt your temple. We've rebuilt your walls. Here we are worshiping you. And yet it appears that the blessings that you promised us are not coming into our lives. And of course, they had forgotten the terms of the covenant. There are some covenants that God makes and there are some promises he makes on both sides of the Bible that are unconditional. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. God said, I'm gonna fulfill this covenant and to highlight it and to underscore it, he puts Abraham asleep and God alone walks through these cut up animals because it's a unilateral covenant. 
And that's why in the opening prayer we read that as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are in the sky above, and if somehow someone could measure the universe, then and only then would God forsake Israel. His point is he's not going to forsake Israel. But there were other covenants and promises that God made with Israel that were conditioned to obedience, just like in the New Testament. Remember last week, we read Deuteronomy 28.1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But the opposite is spelled out in Deuteronomy 28.15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And yet, the Hebrew people in Malachi's day, they were offering defiled offerings before the Lord. They were whining and complaining. They were divorcing their wives, and they will accuse God of being unjust. So that's the charge by God. Secondly, there in your outline, there's the response of the people, the response of your people. I want you to notice how they respond here in verse 17. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And I hope by now you've seen the spiritual insensitivity of these people. Over and over, God says, this is what you've done. And the people come back and say, you don't mean us. You're not talking about us, Lord. You must be speaking of someone else. How have we wearied him? And it's possible for a person to be spiritually insensitive, to become dull and muddled by their sin. And you look at God with a sense of indifference. And so again, the whole verse says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the justice of God? It's the same point said in two different ways, one by a statement and the other by a question. The statement that they made is everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Some had wearied God by complaining that God approved of evil. To take delight means to bestow a favor on someone, a blessing on them. And that's the way this Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament. And so the people were basically saying, God, you lack spiritual discernment. You're blessing these pagans who are disobeying you, and you're not blessing us. And they were saying that God couldn't discern between those who are righteous and those who are wicked, and that God is unfair. This is the same way as basically saying that God was evil and not good. And that's blasphemy. God is holy. And so the question they ask is, where is the God of justice? Now, please know that is not a question to get information. That's an incriminating question. They're accusing God of being unjust. God, there's no justice to be found in you. You've abdicated your responsibility as a righteous and holy God. Where is the God of justice? No wonder God was getting wearied with their words. It's the age-old question that the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. So where is the justice of God? I met with one of our missionaries who oversees some 300 churches in the northern tier of India. 
And he asks us to pray specifically for five pastors who've been arrested for what? For saying that Jesus is Lord and Hinduism is a false religion. They were beaten, they were whipped, and they're in prison this morning. But none of them are asking, where is the justice of God? Because they have a clear perception that God is over their circumstances. Now, someone may object by remembering other Old Testament prophets and believers who made similar complaints. For instance, take Jeremiah the prophet. He lived in a difficult time. Can you imagine you're called by God to be a prophet to the people of Israel? And God says, hey, by the way, no one's going to respond to your message. But you are still to preach it. And so Jeremiah asks, notice, he does it in the spirit that he does it in Jeremiah 12.1. Righteous are you, O Lord. I love the vocative that the old NAS retained, and so I quoted it in verse 6. O Lord, because it expresses depth and feeling from the heart in the Hebrew. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Jeremiah asks the question, but he does so without ever defaming the Lord. Think about godly Asaph. He penned a number of psalms that you and I enjoy. And he appears to question the justice of God. He records his struggle. Listen to Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. And then starting in verse 12 of that psalm, he observes, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And like so many, he is recounting a time in his life where he's suffering from spiritual myopia. It's troublesome to him that the wicked should prosper. Jeremiah and Asaph struggled with this. But I want you to notice that both of them were cured when they looked down the tunnels of time and not at their immediate circumstances. They saw what God was going to do. So in verse 16 of Psalm 73, Asaph writes, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until... Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Asaph was troubled. He said his feet almost slipped until he took the long view and he thought about their ultimate end. When he remembered the coming judgment, he affirmed the justice of God. Now, I raise these examples because while there is an unmistakable similarity between people questioning the justice of God, there's also a stark contrast. On the one hand, we find men like Jeremiah and Asaph with a sincere cry for help and for understanding. They're perplexed, they're confused, they're hurt. 
On the other hand, we find the complaints of the people in Malachi's day who out of a spirit of pride and hardness of heart, they accuse God of being unjust. They have set themselves up to judge the living God. They're accusing God of being outside of history and indifferent to what they were experiencing. But the Bible speaks of God as being at the center of history. He's not the deist view of God where God winds up the universe like a clock and he is detached and not involved. God sees everything that is happening in this world. He sees what is happening in Israel this morning. He knows what is about to happen in the next week or so. He sees it all. And he is over it all because he is the God of justice. But the question still begs, why does God seemingly bless the wicked? Because he does at times. Let me give you three or four answers to affirm why he does it. Jesus gave one answer in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5 and verse 45, it's part of God's general revelation. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God's eternal attributes, his divine nature are seen through what he has created. That's one aspect of God's revelation to man. Another aspect is conscience and that pagans who don't have a law, Paul says in Romans 2.15, are a law unto themselves and that they show the work of God written in their heart. But a third aspect of God's general revelation is his care. He demonstrates, even outright pagans, that God cares about them. Paul said this in Acts 14. He reminds the Gentiles to whom he preached, and yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Or in Romans chapter 2, where Paul dissects every segment of society, he's like an attorney, and he proves that no one can claim ignorance, uh, innocence before God because no one can claim innocence about God. God has revealed himself to every segment of society. And he reminds them in Romans 2 of the kindness of God that should lead you to repentance. It is true that sometimes God allows the bottom to fall up all out where all you can do is look up. But that's not his only mode of operation God oftentimes blesses the unsaved man with great blessing. I'm overwhelmed with your goodness, Lord. What do you want me to do? The blessings of God can lead us to repentance. But sometimes bad things also happen to bad people. The scripture reminds us that both the righteous and the wicked, as Jesus affirmed, can experience heartache. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Job reminds us that some things are dialed from the hand of the evil one. And so Malachi, like Asaph, Solomon, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, they're answering this age-old question. And in most of the situations, the problem is, is that people are just looking at their circumstances around them and not the long view. They are suffering from spiritual myopia. I looked up in the dictionary this week a definition of myopia. I knew somewhat what it was because my dad was an ophthalmologist, and we would sit at the dinner table, and we'd hear about all these terms, and that's what you speak about, like a preacher at our table. What do I speak about? What preachers do? Well, myopia, defined by Webster's, is, quote, a condition 
This is their primary definition, a condition in which the visual images come to a focus in front of the retina of the eye, resulting especially in defective vision of distant objects, i.e. nearsightedness. And so that's the primary definition, but there's a secondary definition that can speak of its metaphorical use. And it says a lack of foresight or discernment, a narrow view of something. Now, if I were to take out my contacts this morning, I would see a, a sea of blurred people because I'm nearsighted. But many people are suffering from spiritual myopia and that all they can see is the circumstances around them. They see up close, clearly, but they don't see the bigger picture. And so Malachi is going to give us the bigger picture this morning. And these people were suffering of spiritual myopia. All they saw were their circumstances. So they're belly aching, they're groaning, and they are wearing God out. So that's the charge by God. That's the response of the people. Now comes the answer from Malachi, the answer from Malachi. And the answer is found in two messengers. And these messengers that he's going to describe are found in the distant future. And he's going to exhort them not to look simply at their circumstances, but to take the long view. He wants them to understand God's prophetic schedule. Prophecy, when rightly understood, changes your life today. And so he speaks of two messengers who are going to come and bring change. Let's look at these two messengers. The first messenger is described here in chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord, here are small letters, Adonai, and if you're not familiar with the different words for God, whether it's capital G, capital O, capital D, or capital G, small letter O-D, or capital L, small letter O-R-D, or capital L-O-R-D, all caps, read the preface of the New American Standard. It will help you as you read Scripture. And so I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear away before me, and the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, precisely who is this messenger who will clear away before me? Now, if you remember from the first chapter of uh, Malachi in the opening message, uh, the word Malachi means my messenger. And a handful of commentators who don't believe that the Bible is a divine human book, they basically say that what is in view here is the prophet Malachi. And that's because they don't believe that someone can foretell the future. Look, God put the key in the front door. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can't believe the first verse of the Bible, which is the primary truth that Satan is trying to undermine in our American culture through the theory of evolution, which is error, it's gross ignorance. And if you're not convinced of that, you need to come to the conference we're having here in April. But if you can't believe the first verse of the Bible, you can't believe the rest of the Bible. And so very clearly, this is a prophecy, and it's a prophetic utterance of a messenger who's yet to come, and his name given to us in the New Testament is John the Baptist. Put out in the margin next to this verse for the first messenger, Matthew 11.10, Matthew 11.10. If you have a Bible with cross references, you might be able to just circle Matthew 11 and verse 10. But for context, context sake, I want to begin reading in Matthew 11.7. Look at the screens in front of you. 
And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Reeds grow everywhere along the bank of the Jordan River. We did a baptism there last month. They're everywhere. And so he says, did you go out to look at a reed shaken by the wind? He is underscoring that John was no reed shaken by popular opinion where he put his finger into the air and what did the people want to hear and I'll give it to him. Now here is a man who had backbone and he wasn't swayed by opinion or circumstances. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. That was certainly true of Herod, who imprisoned John. However, John wore rough garments, and he was willing to live a rough life out there in the wilderness in preparation for this short uh, ministry that God gave him. And Jesus affirmed that Jesus was a prophet. He's the first true prophet who comes on the scene after 400 years of silence where there was no prophecy, no prophets in Israel. So when you think between Malachi and Matthew, there's a 400-year span of time. And he is God's herald. Now look at verse 10, and this is the verse I want you to focus on. It's right here in Malachi 3.10. This is the one about whom it is written, and you'll notice it goes to all capital letters, which tells you in the NASB that this is an Old Testament quotation. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. Now, the fact that John will come is predicted by the prophet Malachi. And by the way, sometimes when you read an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, it will read a little bit differently. That's because they're reading from the Septuagint. Remember, in Israel proper, most Jews spoke Aramaic. But when you thought about the Jews through the diaspora and all the surrounding countries, most Jews spoke Greek. And so they read the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It's in your margin, symbolizes LXX, the Roman numeral, all right, for 70. In fact, there are two Old Testament passages that picture the coming of John the Baptist. One is found in Malachi that we're looking at this morning. The other is found in the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter. And of course, Isaiah precedes Malachi by 300 plus years. Let me read to you Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Isaiah says of this one coming, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord. Notice all caps. Again, the sacred name for God. Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. God is going to come in the wilderness, yes, because this prophet has already said, a baby will be born unto us. Wonderful. The baby's name will be called Mighty God. God is going to become a man. And so clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we know that this is a reference to John the Baptist, indisputably. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all quote this verse of Scripture from Isaiah as being fulfilled in John. In fact, hold your finger in Malachi and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1 for a moment. The Gospel of John chapter 1. As you're turning there, we've already read an account from Matthew. Let me quote to you what Mark says. He says, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And again, all four Gospels describe him as a voice calling out in the wilderness. And Mark quotes the Septuagint. 
And who is he quoting? The Lord Jesus. And if you were here for a sermon some time back ago, I demonstrated you from Scripture that Jesus not only knew Hebrew, he knew Greek. That's why he could word for word quote the Greek text. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Paul knew Hebrew. He knew Greek. Anyway, um, John 1.19, this uh, delegation is sent to find out who is this guy preaching out in the wilderness. Look at John 1.19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So on the first day of his public ministry, as he's proclaiming that Messiah is coming, get your hearts ready, they send a committee. And they should have sent a committee. Why? Because they are the guardians, they are the custodians of the faith. And we're told specifically here in verse 19 that the Jews did this. And if you know John's gospel, the term the Jews is a reference to the Pharisees, the chief group that opposed the Lord Jesus. So this delegation asks him several questions, and John clearly answers them with a series of three denials. Look at verse 20. And he confessed and did not deny, and this is what he confessed, I am not the Christ. John says, even before they ask him specifically, that he's not the Messiah. Why would they even ask that? Because they knew Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And in the first 69 weeks, the prophet Daniel pinpoints the coming of the Messiah. How did the Magi know that this was the time for Messiah to come? Because they understood Daniel's prophecy. And so the Jews, there was wild messianic fever in Jesus' day because they understood this is the time frame that Daniel pinpoints for the Messiah to come. So they asked a second question at him. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, that's a good question. Why? Because when we come to Malachi chapter 4, some 400 years before, hundreds of years after Elijah had already been taken to heaven, Malachi says that Elijah is coming back. Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. They ask a third question. Are you the prophet? And they answered, no. What does that refer to? What Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. Let me dust off your minds with that truth. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Some Jews in Jesus' day correctly thought that the Messiah would be this special prophet. As you read the Gospels, others thought that it could be a distinctly different individual. How do we know which one it was? Again, we have divine commentary. When you come to the Acts of the Apostle, Peter quotes Moses and said, Jesus is that prophet that Moses said uh, would come. So their question gets very specific now in verse 22. Notice. Then they said to him, who are you? Tell us, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? We know who you say you're not, but who do you say you are? And John's answer comes directly from the text we just read in Isaiah 40. He said, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make the way of the Lord straight, as Isaiah the prophet said. 
I love his answer. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice calling out in the wilderness. Think of what he could have said. I'm the one that the angel of God appeared to in the temple to my dad, Zechariah, who announced my birth. He could have said, I'm the one who was told that from his mother's womb he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's who I am. It's not what he says. I'm the voice. I'm not the message. I'm just a messenger. I'm not the Messiah. I am the voice for the Messiah. You've got to love this guy. He's not on some self-promotion campaign like most Christian leaders today. He sees himself as nothing more than a vehicle. So in verse 23, John is pointing the priests and the Levites back to Isaiah's prophecy, affirming that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now go back to Malachi chapter 3. We are introduced initially to John, and the reason I belabor this is because the answer is found in two messengers that he's going to describe. Both are in the distant future. And I'm jumping ahead of myself, so be patient, because before we're done in the book of Malachi, we'll see that if you read both Isaiah and Malachi, it's obvious that John the Baptist did not fulfill these predictions entirely. In fact, there's three people that are in view in these last two chapters. There's John the Baptist, there's the messenger of messengers, we call him Jesus, And then there's this prophet, Elijah, who is coming back again. There's a reason why at every Passover meal, Jewish people in their home in America, across Israel, they set an empty place setting. Why? Because they believe that Elijah the prophet is coming back. Why do they believe that? Because the prophet Malachi said that he would come back. In fact, Jesus spoke of Elijah the prophet coming back in reference to his second coming. Listen to these words in Matthew 17. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes, they were the teachers of the law, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's what we're going to study in Malachi 4. But I say to you that Elijah already came. That's Malachi chapter 3 concerning John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Indeed, Herod cut the guy's head off. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, you might be thinking, how is it that all four Gospels teach that John potentially fulfilled these prophecies but did not fulfill them completely? Come for the last message in this series in Malachi 4, and we'll answer it, all right? Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Malachi is giving an answer to the people of Israel in his day who were accusing God of being unjust. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. Where is the justice of God? And so this first uh, 
messenger that he speaks to give them the long view to put their suffering in perspective. Again, in verse one of Malachi three, behold, I am sending my messenger and he will clear away before me. But there's a second messenger and he's further described here in verse one. In the Lord, notice now it's capital L, small letter O-R-D. Do you see that in your Bible? Don't look at me, look at your Bible. That means it's the name Elohim one of the sacred names for God. And that's important in the identification of this messenger. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. God is going to suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says Yahweh of hosts. He's telling them not simply to look at the circumstances around them because there's a messenger who's coming who's going to change everything. And he is coming, again, he's described with the article here, the messenger. Two messengers are coming, one John the Baptist, the other the messenger. So let's ask some questions about the messenger. Three questions. First, who is the messenger of the covenant? Second, what is the covenant that Malachi is referring to? And then three, how will he suddenly come to his temple? Well, we know that the messenger of the covenant is obviously Jesus. When John, the first messenger, came, what did he do? He prepared his way. And and second, from the Hebrew Bible, and you can figure it out in English, but it's indisputable in the Hebrew text, grammatically, the messenger goes back to the nearest antecedent, and it's clear in English too, the Lord. The Lord is the messenger. Adonai is coming. The Lord is identified as a messenger, reminding us that the Messiah is more than a man. He is equally Adonai. And since the Spirit has Malachi use the article, the messenger, the messenger of the covenant, he's distinguishing him from my messenger, which leads us directly into the second question. What precisely is the covenant that the messenger is bringing? Well, we know precisely what Jesus thought it was. If you were here on Wednesday night and we had the Lord's Supper, and when we have the Lord's Supper, unless you're providentially hindered, you should come. Why? Because it's an obedience issue. God says that when the people of the Lord gather for the Lord's Supper, you are to participate. I know not everyone can come on a Wednesday night. I get that. But if you can come, you should come. And we do it between Wednesday and Sunday for a reason so that our Marines, some who work every other weekend, never miss the opportunity to be able to celebrate in the Lord's table. Well, Jesus said this in Luke 22. He said, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus there at the Last Supper is reminding them that what he is about to accomplish in the next few days that will follow is a picture of the new covenant in my blood. Where is he getting this? Every Jew in their mind immediately went to texts like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Let me read Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah the prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. See all caps, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So this is different. Even though in Egypt, they live like the devil in a lot of ways, and during the time of the wilderness, God was still a husband to them. God doesn't break his marriage covenants like the people in Malachi's day were doing. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this new covenant was promised to the people of Israel centuries before through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. And the promise here is that they will all know the Lord. Now, think about this. Was this fulfilled at Jesus' first coming? Absolutely not. Only a trickle response was given by the millions of Jews, maybe 30,000 Jews came to faith. Now, initially, the church was all Jewish. There came a point where God moved them out into Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth, and they began to reach Gentiles. And then it became, after a while, not just all Jewish, but more Gentile than Jewish. And there came a point where it became anti-Jewish. In some ways, that's where so-called Christians are today. They're against Israel when they ought to be in favor of her. But he came to his own, John can write, and his own received him not. That was the general disposition of the nation. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. And if you read Hebrews chapter 8, it tells us that while this still has a future fulfillment amongst the people of Israel, remember I read this morning, right after I read the new covenant in the pastoral prayer, that as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are in the sky, God is going to be faithful to Israel. And that's important that he gives it in that context because people could easily think God's done with Israel. They didn't become recipients of the new covenant with the exception of a remnant. So in Hebrews 8, it tells us that Gentiles today can share in the blessings of that covenant, but God is not done with them. Now, I want you to notice some of the characteristics of this covenant, because it would be a good test for some of us to see if we are really recipients of this covenant. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, the Old Testament believer had a different relationship to the Holy Spirit than we do as New Covenant believers. This is what Jesus said in John 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That underscores our security. He doesn't leave you. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So the new covenant had not yet been inaugurated. Why? Because Jesus had not shed his blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. In time and space, sin had to be forgiven so that we could be indwelt. And until sin could be forgiven, you could not be indwelt by the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. This is one of the most hundred verses we'll give you here on this coming Wednesday night. Not this Wednesday, but I think Wednesday week. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You should know those words inside and out. 
He, contextually God the Father, made him, contextually God the Son, who knew no sin, that is, he's the sinless Son of God, to be sin on our behalf. What does the Bible mean when it says that he made him to be sin? To be sin was to be treated as if he had committed every evil thing you and I had ever done. He bore the wrath of God in his own body upon the cross. He was treated as if he had committed your sin, as if he had committed my sin. Hanging on the cross was the holy, undefiled, sinless Lamb of God, and he was treated with wrath. And what happened? Well, the Scripture teaches an exchange takes place. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was sinless, to be sin on our behalf while hanging there on the cross. You say, how could he pay an eternal debt while hanging on the cross? He's just there six hours. It's a good question. I've been asked it many times. Because Jesus is infinite. And as an infinite person, he can accomplish in a finite period of time, he is forsaken of the Father, he is forsaken by the Spirit, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies not just physically, he dies spiritually, and as an infinite person, he can pull off in a finite period of time what you as finite people would take us all of eternity to do. While hanging on the cross, it becomes sin on our behalf, so that here's the reason we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So there's an exchange. We call it the substitutionary death of Christ. He takes our wrath. He is treated as if He had committed your sin. And when you come to Him by faith, you take His righteousness. And because he deemed you as righteous for the first time ever, he can put the Holy Spirit within you. No old covenant believer ever knew this. Even John, who had a unique relationship to the Spirit of God, Jesus said he was least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Yet there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, but the person under the new covenant is greater than John because John never lived to see the fulfillment of the new covenant. But this doctrine of substitution is what the Protestant reformers fought for. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone to become a recipient of the Spirit of God. And over 30,000 believers were slaughtered because they did not embrace the Roman Catholic teaching of the day. And by the way, institutionally and formally, Rome has not changed one bit. Thank God for those Roman Catholics who through their own study of Scripture or through hearing some preacher on the radio or television or on the internet have come and received Jesus as Lord. But understand, they still deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, as found on those five solos on the window behind me. And so because we can be indwelt by the Spirit, God says, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. Because you are holy, I can send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. I spoke last night to a gentleman who wrote me. I met him going out the door last Sunday, and he thanked me for talking to him and wrote me a long email and said, you know, I read this booklet a few years ago, and in this church I'm in in Florida, and it told me how to become a Christian, and I received Jesus. I'm thankful I can never lose that salvation, but you know, I've been living with this woman for a number of years, and some of my family members seem to have 
an objection over it, and what's wrong with it? Everything. Everything's wrong with it. And I said to him, look, if you truly were born again, your life will change. And if your life hasn't changed, it just means you weren't born again. And if you were truly born again and you fell into adultery because let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, then you would meet God at his woodshed. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God puts his law into your heart and he puts a new want to, to want to obey the Lord. Look, I would rather eat dirt than commit that evil sin. I'd rather die than commit that sin. You see, when you're born again, your life changes, your direction changes. No new direction, just an indication that there's no new life. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. How so? Because for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is the covenant which Malachi is referring to, which this second messenger will bring. And so the messenger of the covenant is Jesus. The covenant is what the New Testament underscores with Jeremiah is called the new covenant. But what does it mean when it says here in Malachi 3 that he'll suddenly come to his temple? Stay with me. Gird up your minds for action. Don't quit on me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, his coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, those who teach that God has done with Israel and the church has replaced Israel, how do they get around a verse like this? They have to spiritualize it like so many other prophecies in Scripture. They say, well, when you're born again, the Lord suddenly comes because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's true. You are suddenly a temple of the Holy Spirit. In Him, you also, having heard the message of truth, having believed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's true, but that's not what this is talking about. When Jesus, by the way, was here the first time, Did he, as God's messenger, suddenly come to his temple? No, he did not. And Malachi, like many of the Old Testament prophets, will write not only the first coming of the Messiah, but the second coming. Let me give you an example. Most of you know Isaiah 9, 6. It's read every Christmas. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's the first coming. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's the second coming. And if you were with me in my study of Daniel, we looked at about a dozen passages where sometimes in a single verse or in two or three verses, the whole prophetic plan of God is given. Well, listen to this verse, Isaiah 61.1. Jesus goes into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll there in Nazareth. He opens it up to just the right spot, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord... God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops right in the middle of a verse. Because the rest, and he'll say, say, today this has been fulfilled in your sight. The rest of the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. When is that going to happen? At his second coming. He came the first time as a lamb. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And so what I want you to see is Malachi speaking of this new covenant, but he's doing it in terms of Israel. And when is Israel holistically going to say, Jesus is Lord? Jeremiah 30, right before the new covenant, 31 says during the time of Jacob's trouble, which in the New Testament is called the great tribulation. Now we'll come to that in chapter four. Now the devil tempted Jesus there in the pinnacle to suddenly come into the temple. That's what he wanted. But Jesus knew that was not the Father's will. Jesus knew that he needed to come the first time to die on a cross. But there's coming a time in the future when Jesus is going to come back, he's going to split the Mount of Olives in two. His feet will stand on the mountain, split it in two. Has that ever happened? No. Will it happen? How did God fulfill the prophecies for the first coming? Literally. How is he going to fulfill them for the second coming? Literally. So you can't say God's done with Israel. See, many people saying Jesus come back, we're just all going to heaven. That's not what the scriptures teach. There's hundreds of prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, and God is going to fulfill them. He'll split the mountain in two, and he'll go up there to the temple mount. Now, where do Jews in Israel want to be buried? Where's their preferred place if they have the money to pull it off in this day? Right here, here's a picture of the largest graveyard in the world. It's a photo of the graveyard on the Mount of Olives, and you're just looking at a snippet of it. When we stand on the Mount of Olives and we look down, we see this massive graveyard, but it keeps going and going and going and going on in this direction. Thousands of Jewish people. Why do they want to be buried there? Because you see, at the base of this graveyard is the Kidron Valley, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and then you go up to that Temple Mount, and that's where the Messiah is going to be. And it's also called that Kidron Valley by the prophet Joel, the Valley of Decision. And Messiah is going to do a judgment with Israel. And so the Israelis buried themselves in such a way that if they came up out of the grave, they would be looking straight at the Temple Mount. That would be great news for some of them. But for many, it will be the worst news He is suddenly going to come to his temple, and he is going as the messenger of the covenant. He is going to judge them, and he's going to judge all the living Jews from the tribulation period. What's going to happen during that time? Zechariah 13, listen to this. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire... I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. If you know Zechariah, this is a great tribulation period. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. Now understand, when you read about the day of the Lord in Scripture, it mimics a biblical day. What's a biblical day? Well, when sundown comes, a new day starts. The Sabbath starts at sundown. It gets very dark all night long. And the next day, the sun comes up. And then sundown at the end of that next day. And that's the end of a biblical day. And the day of the Lord is a protracted period of time that mimics a biblical day. I think we're in the shadows of the tribulation, but we ain't seen nothing yet. 
when the church is removed and the time of Jacob's trouble get, comes, it's going to get very dark. The birth pangs will come, and it will get darker and darker and darker until Jesus comes. And it will get bright and glorious for a thousand years. But then at the end of the thousand years, tribulation saints who will have children because they'll be in their natural bodies. There will be a final upsurge against Jesus as Lord, and it will get dark all over again. And then we'll go into eternity future. So there's a dark side and a bright side. What were the Jews in Malachi's day looking at? Just the bright side. And they didn't realize, oh, there's a dark side to it too. In fact, I think there's more said about the dark side than there is about the bright side. But Amos says this, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. So Malachi is simply saying, look, God is just. He is sending a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the messenger. And when the messenger comes back, he is going to judge the world because he is a righteous God. Verse 2, I'm almost done. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire in fuller soap. A refiner's fire purifies the metal and the dross and the dirt comes to the top and it's skimmed off. And, and God often pictures himself with fire, whether it's with Moses in a burning bush or guiding the nation with a pillar of fire and the giving of the Ten Commandments and fire and smoke. And he speaks here of fuller soap or a launderer's soap, you could render it, that was filled with lye that had a way of purifying the clothing. And it's a beautiful picture of what God does, not just to the people of Israel in the future, but what he does to us in our day. Peter refers back to this imagery in 1 Peter 1 where he says we are like gold tested by fire and, and God purifies us through hard times not to deny his love but to prove his love. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Why? So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's going to happen in the millennial temple. There'll be really, truly, genuine, converted Levitical priests not to do the kinds of sacrifices they did in Jesus' day, but a different kind. That's a whole other sermon. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. So Malachi wants to speak to these folks who are pointing the finger of God and saying God is unjust. And he's saying God is not unjust. In fact, God's righteousness is going to be displayed. And by the way, many times in the New Testament, God does this same thing. He, he will speak of, you know, what unbelievers are going to face. But then he'll remind us immediately, be careful, because you have the capacity to do what they do as a lifestyle. So don't be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives this long list. But in the context, it's as an exhortation for a believer not to do it. Or in Ephesians 5, he'll, he'll say, you know, the, the impure and the unrighteous are not going to inherit in the immoral God's kingdom. Don't be deceived. And then he'll come right back and say, but you as Christians, because you are a new people, are not to live this way. And it's very possible to to go through all the religious hoops like these people were doing, but out of the wrong spirit. God's not interested in just burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's interested in the heart 
And what's going to unfold? Finally, verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. Remember, he's giving this category of, of people whom they say they're being blessed. God says their judgment hasn't come yet. And against those who oppress the wage earner of his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's interesting. When we come to chapter 4, we'll see there's a parallel between Malachi's day and the end of this age. And when you look at this, this list of sins, whoa, sorcerers. The New Testament, that's pharmakia. You know what a pharmacy is, right? Drug use intersects in the scripture with Satanism. And who would have imagined that we're at where we're at today? We've gone from 20,000 people a year dying of overdoses to 300 people every single day in America. 100,000 last year. Maybe as many as 150,000 by this calendar year is over. Adulterers. Now, they were committing that in Malachi's day. They divorced their wife. They married another. It's widespread in our day. Sexual immorality is everywhere on the planet. Those who swear falsely, look, when you have people who will perjure themselves under oath, I mean, think about the things that were said about our last president, whether you like them or not. There are people who perjured themselves against our president, only to find out that it was all false. And when people no longer fear God, the foundations of our judicial system falls apart. Those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow, the orphan, and the, and the alien, you think, well, I can pull it off. She needs the money so desperately. She'll work cheaper. Well, that guy's an alien. God's not against aliens coming into the country. He's against them coming in illegally. They could come into Israel, but if they came into Israel, they had to come as citizens, and they had to submit to Israeli rule. We've let 8 million people over the border. They've already caught over 200 people who are on the terrorist list. We're headed towards trouble. He goes through this list, and they don't fear me. That's our day. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, and again, it's in the vocative, bringing out the depth of emotion here. O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not unjust. It may look like this world is falling apart, and if you look just at the circumstances, not at the long view, you will quickly become discouraged. But God is in control, and he is coming back, and he's going to make every wrong right. And you may have been guilty of all of these sins, but our God is a God of forgiveness. And though your sins be as scarlet, he wants to make them as white as snow. But he can only do that through a new covenant, through the blood of the new covenant, through the Lord Jesus who is dead and raised for you that you might be forgiven and have new life. Now, our Father, we thank you for the time we had in your word this morning. Thank you that it never returns void without accomplishing the purpose for which you have sent it.
We know this is not simply what you have said, but this is what you are saying, that these things were written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So help us to pay close attention. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who's unsure of their eternal destiny. Let them know that the Lord Jesus has provided a full and complete payment, that whosoever will, whatever they've been like, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that if they will call upon him and put their faith where you put their sin on that cross, that you will instantly and eternally save them and change them. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here and you have a public decision to make, you've never confessed Jesus openly as your Lord, and that should show itself in baptism, or you've been saved and baptized, but you need a church home, if you want to make that public, I invite you to step out. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Grace. There's someone down there to meet you. Step out now and meet me here in the front.